Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connection through our favorite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurangai and Daru people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Manafenua of Tefanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. Yay! Yay! So how was your week? Tell me about your week. You know what? It's very long week. Very busy. I've basically not been home a single night this week and it's just been quite stressful, hmm. but it's fine. Like, I can't believe it's a short week. It was actually only a four day week with Anzac Day. But, oh, you guys yeah. get that day off. We didn't get that day off. Oh, yeah. That's a shame. So, yeah, short week, but very busy. But I think I did have like a moment of wonder this week because I had quite a challenging day at work. There was some meetings and things and I just got to really take control and just kind of direct everything and then afterwards my manager took me inside and basically just told me how amazing I was and how much he valued me and it was just really lovely to to be recognized you know to like see your value and your abilities recognized so Mm. that was really lovely and I just Mm. had this like moment I just I'm so much more confident at work and I know this is going to sound mad but it's basically since my transformation into my true house, it's like changed my life. Look, I think that Slytherin really is the ambition house and there's just people give it a lot of flack, but there's a lot of, there's something really amazing about being ambitious too. I don't know what, like I know it's a fictional sorting mechanism into a fictional world and there's no bearing on reality and it's not like psychological or anything, but I just find myself like if there's drama at work, I normally get sucked into it, but now I just sit there being like, what would a Slytherin do in this situation? Where is it advantageous for me to get involved? And like, it's not. So I'm just not going to partake in this which is a level of self-awareness I did not possess previously so I'm just saying it works it's it's a tool like any other right so you've you've been able to lean into it because yeah like you're just take you're embracing the things about yourself that line up with the traits of that house and it's giving you more confidence and it's helping you make better decisions I think it works it's legit Mm. It's just a bit unhinged, but yes. It's not unhinged at all. No way, no way. I mean, (laughs) I I know we talk a lot about Harry Potter because we really do love Harry Potter. But like the things that come out of it, this is what I mean when I say that the fandom is amazing. Yeah, it's what you apply to your own life, right? It's the lessons you take for yourself. And that's what we try to do here as well, is try to take lessons for our lives. Um, But that's enough of my rambling. What about you? How has your week been? Uh, I feel like I was spinning my wheels a lot of the week. Um, but I guess I did have a really nice moment when I just decided to mow the lawn and like, it's always been my husband's job because I do a lot of other jobs. So I was like, I'm not taking this one, but I was out there and I was looking at it and I had a morning and I thought, you know what? I wanted to listen back to our first season and I thought I'll just listen while I'm mowing. And it was actually really delightful. It was so wonderful to get to spend that time with you again, even though you were at work doing Mm -hmm. other things. And this is a conversation we had in November of last year. But yeah, I just really enjoyed myself and I ended up mowing the whole lawn and it looks amazing. And then like, I was like, oh, I'm not done with the episode. So I like moved a bunch of stuff in the garden that needed doing. So I was really productive. And I think my moment of wonder was like being able to stand back and look at the work I had done and also realize that like I did it because it needed doing and I wasn't even very grumpy that 
I had to do it. Like, I know that I should have been because it, it is my husband's job. But I really did enjoy doing it. And I enjoyed spending that time with, like, past us at Yay. the same time. So, Aww. yeah. Really That's good. so wholesome. <laughs> it's really good. Like, I was really enjoying it. Standing out there like, I could mow. Yeah. So, this week we um, are reading chapters 14 to 20 through the theme of neglect. So, do you have a little story for us? I do. And it's actually like related to gardening. So um, a couple years ago, I took up gardening. Actually, when I went and visited you in New Zealand for your birthday, Aww. that was that year. Um, so I had built all these garden beds from reclaimed timber palings that my father-in-law gave me. Uh, I was like at the point in my gardening journey where I was like reading seed catalogs in bed, you know, where you're like, I'm going to get this <laughs> and I'm going to grow this. And I even ordered bare root apple trees from Tasmania. And for those of you who don't know what the climate of Sydney is like, it's subtropical. Apples are not known to really like do well in a subtropical climate. They like the cold, but I live in hope. Anyway, the first First year I had a really bountiful garden. I had more freckled lettuce than you could shake a stick at. I had tomatoes up to my armpits. I had like literal mm. forests of chard and rocket. I had peas and cucumbers and I even had a few pumpkins. And then because I had succeeded, I lost interest and the garden oh. has been left to its own devices. In short, since that first season, I totally neglected it. But the neglect has been kind of unexpectedly good. The neglect has enabled the volunteers. In gardening, a volunteer is an unexpected plant that is not necessarily unwelcome. So it's like the opposite of a weed. My neglected garden is a total mystery because I rarely visit it, um, but it's absolutely teeming with volunteers and they are thriving. So now every year I have tomato plants that pop up in new places. Um, this year we had a whole Aww. bunch of red and yellow currant tomatoes, which are really tiny. They don't keep once they're picked, so you really do have to eat them straight off the tree. And they're amazing. Um, so the kids and I just went out there one afternoon and like picked and ate them all. And that was afternoon tea. We have we did leave some for the blue tongue lizard and she hissed at us. So sorry about that, Liz. <laughs> My neglected neglected rosemary bush has like tripled in size. I have some really wildly successful oregano that I got as a gift from our friend Cell. Her mom gave me some. She like divided a potful. I stuck it in a big planter. I forgot about it and I left it to languish behind some like dollar bougainvilleas that I had rescued from the last chance stand at the nursery. The bogues are going crazy as well. The oregano is taken over back there. It's just beautiful. Like they're not sad sticks anymore. The oregano is gorgeous. I found a couple months ago an entire patch of chamomile which when you crush the leaves it smells like green apple and I only noticed it because I could smell the apple and I looked down and there were all these little daisy like flowers so I mean neglect can be really terrible like super terrible it's not good when it comes to people or pets or you know ourselves but also neglect can sometimes create space for things to grow even to flourish. So what these things were meant to be, unexpectedly fragrant carpets of chamomile or unruly bougainvillea or tomatoes whose will to reproduce outstrips poor soil conditions and a multi-year drought. The neglect that I left my garden to has actually fostered all of this amazing growth. So it can do that. Not always, but sometimes. Oh, I love that. That's so true. Because sometimes when you, because my experience with gardening is that I get too obsessed with it and then I worry all the time and then you kind of I kill them because I overwater them or I fuss too much. So this is me with everything yeah. else to this point. If I even uh, like my strawberries and I have an agreement where we don't make eye contact and they will thrive. But if I so much as look at them, it's all over. Yeah. So like this idea of just leaving. And I certainly find that like when I ignore my tomato plants, they do great. As soon as I start to like do anything with them, it's downhill. Yeah, that's it. Just leave them. They'll be fine. The ones that survive are meant to survive. The others are too weak for me. <laughs> 
Exactly. I was trying to think of something that where neglect had been fruitful because neglect is such a negative, it carries a lot of negative connotations. Mm. So I thought, where is somewhere that neglect has actually been useful? And I would say that all of the treasures we find in the garden, it's kind of made it really magical for the kids as well. Yeah. Like, oh, what's this? Oh, we have flowers down here? Or like, you know, when you're a kid and everything is a mystery? It's like a little fairy garden, you know? You can go yeah. out there and discover things. and Yeah. Full of funnel webs, though, probably. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the problem with Australia. Wear your boots, people. <laughs> oh, and your long sleeves. And, you're and deep. then check the boots. Check the boots before you put them on. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All our boots live inside because of that reason. I just clean them in the laundry tub and then I bring them in. I just, I can't do it. Yeah. If something is outside and a spider has colonized it, it belongs to the spiders now. I still do that. I like check my shoes before I put them on in the morning. I'm like, nope, don't know what's in there. And I do have a lot of spiders in my house, but this is New Zealand. They're not going to kill me. <laughs> but still, I don't want them in my shoes. Yeah, fair enough. That would be an unpleasant squish, if anything, if nothing else. And a bite, probably. Oh yeah, little nip. Shall we move on to the chapter summaries? Sure thing. Um, I will summarize them for us. Oh, thank so, you. So, Laszlo finds his place among the Tizacane and those who have answered Errol Fane's call for aid. After six months in the desert, he has made firm friendships. He tells a story which turns out to be true, sort of, and they cross the cusp, headed towards the city, and Errol Fane stays behind. We learn Sarai's talent. She manifests moths and can invade and change the dreams of those upon whom her moths alight. Her youth spent inflicting the citizens of weep with nightmares means her own sleep is compromised. To her dismay, she wakes from a nightmare of her own. Minya's latest court soul reveals that Errol Fane is back in the city. So a lot. <laughs> yeah, it felt like a lot. Um, but mostly I really enjoyed hearing about Laszlo's last few days in Elmuthaleth. I really enjoyed it as well. I love him becoming a little adventurer. It's just really fun. He's got sass. Yeah. He was sassing Thion. He was sassing Thion. And I'm like, wow, you've changed a lot in six months. Like, this is quite the flip. I love it. Well, and even there was even a reference to it, wasn't it? That he, whatever awe he had felt for Thion was gone. Long gone. Yeah. And I also love that Thion didn't recognize him. Yeah. You know, when he yeah. first saw him. That's like the dream, right? Like, you're looking <laughs> so good that your ex is like, wait, it's the ultimate glow up. Laszlo's had the ultimate glow up. Yeah. And he's gone hot. <laughs> And, and like, look how cute is Calixti. Can we talk about Calixti for a minute? Calixti is my fave. Me I mean, too. she's kind of, she's what I aspire to be. <laughs> yeah, she's young and a brat and I love her. I love that bit where she goes, you know, if I have to listen to these men give us one more story, I think I might just kill myself. I'm like, <laughs> oh, look, it's it's me at work. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. She's, ba- oh, like, I love her so much. And I just love how much she like adopted Laszlo is like a brother like okay Mm. you're part of the family now I also love her justification for why she climbed the tower Mm. you know because I could it just reminded me of like that kind of Edmund Hillary story when you know they asked him why he climbed Everest and he said because it was there yeah I just love this idea that people just do things just because of course they will yeah to me I'd be like why would I do such a crazy thing yeah oh like um I watched the free solo documentary sometime last year and the whole time I was just like nope I don't even want to climb a staircase without safety ropes all right but he just did that Mm -mm. he climbed El Capitan with nothing Mm -mm. makes me makes me uncomfortable makes the bottom of my feet itch when I watch things like that yeah right it's very uncomfortable it's like I also can't watch free diving videos you know when Mm. they just kind of like fall into the depths of the ocean no thank you why would you go down that far (laughs) scary stuff lives down there it's dark down there and we don't even know what's down there okay like no 
very uncomfortable. But we have people like Clicks to love. Um, did you see very much that you wanted to link to the theme of neglect? I mean, I kind of... The one that really stood out to me, I saw neglect really strongly sort of in that last... Um, chapter we spend with Laszlo like that's where it really came home to me because I just thought there were these real themes so Laszlo talks about how he loved the library and he felt as though it was sentient and it looked after him and I just love that idea that you know he didn't have anything so this is where he put all his love and his attention and he kind of fabricated this return and I thought that was kind of beautiful but neglectful it also kind of reminded me of Harry Potter and how Harry fears the Dementors and then you know it's you fear fear itself and I feel like Laszlo loving the library is him loving knowledge for knowledge's sake you know that is a really good way of looking at it um because that's what the library is to him you know it's this window into another world yeah it's knowledge and also it's the opportunity to have the time isn't it like when he was living with the monks he didn't have the time yeah so when he was living with the monks he didn't have any time to like give to his own exploration and his Mm. own development so that's really what he gets by loving the library yeah and I think there's that definite parallel between he really subdued all of his dreaming but as soon as he got to the library it was like he was able to flip that and then go back to being a dreamer but the Mm. thing I was really impressed with is that he remembers everything we see time and time again that he's got like that mind like a steel trap where he remembered the thing about miracles for breakfast and found the key to distilling Azoth for Thion and it was a fairy tale right like it was a fairy tale Mm -hmm. but he remembers remembers all these stories and this is part of the reason that he's actually super valuable not because he's doing some Mm. of that work as the caravan crosses on Muthalith, but also because he's telling stories and everyone can hear them. And he's learned enough unseen that he can tell the stories in both common and unseen. So he's bilingual enough to be able to tell everybody's Mm. stories, which is so fantastic. Yeah, it's just lovely. Like his neglect fuels his love of stories, which makes him valuable to the adventure, right? So it's that kind of ties into the story you told about, yes, neglect can be a terrible thing, but it allows for this growth in other ways. I remember going to a, it was a talk or maybe it was a reading for The Ocean at the End of the Lane with Neil Gaiman. Mm. And he was talking about how if you're stuck for writing, you need to let yourself get good and bored mm. because that's when your mind starts to wander because it wants to entertain itself. And that's when the really, like, sometimes it's silly ideas, but sometimes it's really good ideas. And he had the example of, like, just he just let everything go really silent for a minute. And then he said, I mean, what if this chair was a chair wolf? He literally was just like, what can I make entertaining with what is right in front of me? Mm. So I think in that way, neglect was something that gave Laszlo that impetus to keep searching for and seeking that knowledge which he really loves. I thought it was interesting as well there was that parallel between Laszlo and Sarai because Laszlo refers to himself as a storyteller and then Sarai does as well you Mm. know she's a storyteller a different kind of storyteller obviously but yeah I just love the fact that they have these parallels between them and how they view the world. Yeah I just really felt for Laszlo because like in the space of two pages he says it was the first gift he'd ever been given because he gets that tooth and he says because Laszlo lacking one himself tended to forget about mothers grim and then it'll be the first fuss I have ever endured said Laszlo hearing something raw in his voice that could not be put down to a dry throat yeah those two pages was to me just like neglect all over them not having that paternal care and even you know he had a really close relationship with Master Hirokin but it was definitely couched in the like what is appropriate for the library and what is acceptable for our positions as librarians to the scholars like it was always a slightly subservient thing but here he feels valued and equal and cared for and I, I I loved Errol Fane's reasoning for that which was let me see if I can find it where Errol Fane talks about on page 160 offering Laszlo up to his mother as proxy 
I think that was really beautiful too because his mother hasn't had anyone for a long time so she's been neglected and look as a mother I really don't like uh, one of the things that really cheeses me off is people who are like oh my kids are the worst oh can't wait to get those little demons out of my house like stop it you gave birth to these people why don't you even like them right so like I really am like super I love my kids yes it's challenging sometimes but like I like them as people so I love that Errol Fane recognizes that his mom really likes him and also for his own reasons he can't go in so he's like please take Laszlo Laszlo's great <laughs> like he's trying to rectify that he's neglecting that relationship with his mom for a, a day but he's, he's he's giving her someone worthy of a fuss over mm, I noted that down as well that he neglects his mom by refusing to stay at week. I also thought, and I don't, you know, I'm on the fence of this, but I think he kind of neglects his duty as like leader of this troop of people by not telling them what's going on. Like he strings mm. them along and on page 140 he says, you are rational men and women who believe what you can see and prove. Nothing would be gained by telling you now. I would sooner amplify your curiosity than your skepticism. I think that is probably a bit neglectful on his behalf. Like you can't just drag people along and hope that by the time they get there, they can't actually turn back, <laughs> you know, because they're trapped yeah. now. What if they turn up there and they're like, oh, actually... I'm not the right person for this job. It's too late. Well, I mean, they spoke about contracts, right? Eblis Todd, the builder of the Cloud Spire, had all of these things that he had built into his contract. And, like, they all seem like a bunch of, like, please wait on me. I am a scholar. Like... <laughs> I think that probably the understanding is if they can't do it, then they'll be taken home safely. I'm sure that they'll be compensated. I think that Errol Fane is actually kind of relying on the the knowledge that the Unseen City is this fabled wealthy land. Like, even after 200 years, mm. he's hoping that he can cash in on that. Yeah, writing on the mystery that people would want to know. Mm. I just don't know if that happened to me tomorrow and some guy rocked up and he's like, hey, we're going to, I don't know, Rivendell, but I won't tell you why until you've crossed the desert for two months. I'm not sure I'd sign up. I don't think I would. Look, and I say this as somebody who literally upped stumps and moved for love in my early 20s. Like, I was fine, but like, nah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a bit rich coming from us when we've both been like, <laughs> yeah, I'll move countries, whatever. Where am I going? Yeah, you, like, yeah, I've you, done it you literally three moved times. to New, New Zealand because you applied for a job as kind of a lark, wasn't it? it was like, kind yeah. of like, eh, I'll just try. Bit of a lull. Okay, whatever. It worked out for us and it's going to work out for Laszlo, but still. I don't know. It feels like not a great host to me. I yeah. think you should give them a little bit more. But also, isn't the fact that what it is is so profoundly unreal? Like, do you think that he could have actually gotten people to come if they had actually known what the scale of the problem was? No, it's a good point because he's right. They are people who believe what they can see and prove. So for him to say it, they won't believe him. Like, yeah. just like they don't believe Laszlo when he tells his story because, you know, it's fairy tales or whatever. And I just thought a lot about that because part of me worries that Laszlo might be a conspiracy theorist and that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> because you know 2020 was kind of like a new dawn for the conspiracy theorists and mm -hmm. they've had a great time out there and they continue to have a great time what without anti-vaxxing and all that nonsense that's carrying on mm -hmm. and so when there's on page 126 laszlo says i see no harm in entertaining all ideas no that is not good laszlo some ideas are not worth entertaining like i'm on board with having an open mind and like being open but there are some ideas we do not entertain <laughs> yeah fair enough and I think it, it only works with Laszlo because he actually believes in magic and the world is set up so that we understand that magic is real. Yeah. Like, the skeptics are not us, the audience. But, uh, no. yeah, if someone was like, yeah, magic is real, I'd be like, mm, is it? I mean, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want a port key so I can just go places real quick, all right? Oh, the dream. I know. I was actually just on that topic about kind of believing myths and history. Yeah. When you neglect facts... 
and it just becomes a story and then is easily discounted because this idea that you know obviously something real had happened in the cusp this is a real thing that happened but yeah. it just gets subsumed by time and then it becomes this fairy tale that no one believes it reminded me of you know the lord of the rings and the fellowship of the ring starts with galadriel's like little voiceover where she says you know things that should not have been forgotten were lost history became legend legend became myth Mm -hmm. this idea that if you forget the things that happened then you lose all sense of importance yeah i think that's a really interesting point i think pardon me i kept focusing on how laszlo was so fascinated by how every culture had the same underlying myth Mm. every story had a creation myth that was similar and it focused on al Muthaleth or the dust and like he had put it together as being like oh well this is obviously the cusp and he was just having a joke about it thinking oh it's probably just some rocks that look like demon bones but he even he didn't expect and this is why I don't think he's necessarily conspiracy theorist because he wasn't rewarded by the information he was shocked by it Mm. conspiracy theorists are people who believe even against the face of evidence um and and he believes not at all but like Mm. Errol Fane's like oh I thought you knew yeah you were talking about it like that that I think speaks to the fact that he is willing to entertain ideas but he doesn't necessarily believe them or have proof of faith or yeah because like Thion gets annoyed when he sort of implies that what him and Thion do is the same and Thion's like no I'm a real scientist and (laughs) but Laszlo kind of applies the exact same scientific principle you know he deduces he looks for evidence he has an hypothesis and he enforces it with you know experiments and mind experiments but still you know like it's the same process they've got the same appreciation Thion just lacks imagination I mean he's actually good at figuring out the way things are but he has to be sure he has to be sure about it he has to repeat experiments and we do see this later is that he's like he has to do the thing in a specific set of ways and record his results and what's that thing from Mythbusters it's science if you write it down mm. like that's that and he's writing everything down whereas Laszlo is reading everything and he's he's like the guy in the gift it's always sunny in Philadelphia he's like the guy with the crazy eyes and the <laughs> red the strings string. yeah yeah like that's inside of his brain he's finding all these patterns and connections that other people are like this guy's just nuts but he's actually onto something too because he is finding these commonalities and these various creation myths which is like one of the things I love about folklore honestly folklore is so metal because of that so I'm really with Laszlo on this that like there is a lot of human truth in stories even if it's not like fact I guess if that makes sense yeah and I love that as well like you know there's in fables and fairy tales there's often a reason for the things to be in there Mm. and I uh, yeah I guess I start to get a bit worried when actual history gets lost and turned into stories that people don't believe because you lose very real lessons it's kind yeah. of like this fear that when you know our last surviving surviving members of like the war generation passes and people start to question things and like oh did the holocaust really happen we'll never know and it's like no we actually yeah no it did you know yeah. and it's yeah and then in another hundred years what does that story look like yeah it's yeah history itself is wild um i'll have to find the article i was reading a lot of the Dreamtime songs or the Dreaming songs of Aboriginal Australians, like they go back multiple thousands of years and some of them go back to the end of the last ice age because of the way that they describe like the movement of the sea and how like there used to be land there but now there's sea there and descendants of colonial settlers are kind of comparing notes between what they're learning from these Dreaming songs and like what they know about the geology of Australia and going, oh, hey, actually this matches up. So I think there is some, there's definitely some integrity in the myths that we have as Mm. being part of an oral tradition, but it's really rare to find that 
in many places. And I think Australia is one of the really fascinating cases where we actually have an unbroken chain going back like literally 20, 40,000 years. Because you're kind of protected by that isolation, right? So it kind yeah. of keeps the story contained. Mm. And something about the way that they're cross-referenced, I think, as well. They don't mutate the way that stories often do. But I will see if I can find a better resource for that. Because with all things, I tend to remember the feeling of something. And I remember mm. the awe and the wonder I felt when I was reading it. But I have no idea about the particulars. So see if I can find something to back that up. But yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, I kind of love how Thion has neglected to really integrate himself with the Unseen. And that actually kind of tells them everything they need to know about him. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? So I thought it was quite interesting that he did not bother to learn any Unseen, even though he had made such a show of it when Errol Fane had first turned up. Mm-hmm. And then also that he got a bit shirty that he didn't understand, because that's how I read his reaction yeah. when Leslie was speaking. He was like, uh, excuse me. Yeah, it was page 125. Pardon me, cut in Thion with a pinched look of someone who believes he's being mocked. And since he hadn't bothered to learn Unseen... He could almost be forgiven for thinking so. And meanwhile, Laszlo and Ruza had been talking about whether or not Threaves, which are basically Rathtar slash Sarlax, find each <laughs> other and speak love poetry. Like, nothing to do with what they were talking about. Yeah, and it's just kind of, like, emblematic of Thion's massive ego, right? Like, he just assumes <laughs> everyone's talking about him. He assumes everyone's there to, like, do his bidding and, like, wait on him hand and foot. Because, of course, he's the golden godson. Like. He's Jenna Maroney from 30 Rock. Shut up, fives. Ten is speaking. <laughs> so he walks in absolutely <laughs> I loved that because I thought it showed a lot of his insecurities which we don't often get he seems very together and oh my gosh he's so vain did you pick that up because he like kept his beard trimmed yeah he was like manicured in the desert like may everybody else is great it's basically sunblock at that point like let it all grow I love that I feel like that would be me <laughs> out there like I've got my razor leave me alone yeah, I'd be, like, applying my eyeliner and, like, I feel like that's very much me. Does Thion have long hair? What's his deal? What's his hair situation? I've forgotten. Thion's? Um, I know he's blonde, but other yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think it's, like, a. I feel like it's sort of, like, a curly, lovely mop. Who am I thinking of? Gilderoy Lockhart. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Kenneth Branagh is Gilderoy Lockhart. I'm like, he has, he has Gilderoy Lockhart hair. That makes sense. Um, yeah, so he's probably... Actually, he's Gilderoy Lockhart is probably a good analogy here because mm-hmm. I think Gilderoy would also be going to quite long lengths to keep himself presentable oh, in the yeah. desert. Yeah. At least Thion is smart, though. Yeah, so he definitely did not neglect his hygiene. Mm, mm. <laughs> Just thinks it's so... I think it's so funny. Um, can we talk about what's going on in the Citadel? I had a a callback from, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo. The priest is teaching Edmund in prison to read, and he says, neglect becomes our ally. And I thought of that, and I was like, oh, that's perfect for what's going on in the Citadel. So as long as they're ignored... That is good. That is protecting them and keeping them alive. And I think that that's what Sarai has been doing. Like, when she she no longer really wants to do nightmares, but she's still seeding a lot of dread in the city for the Citadel itself. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think might backfire because then Errol Fane is like, well, we've got to get rid of this thing, which is causing us all so much dread. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. I saw that too. I was like, she's done all this stuff and they've kind of discussed it as a strategy, right? Like we have to keep ourselves safe. One way to do that is to make mm-hmm. sure that no one wants to come in here. So yeah, she seeds this dread. But that is ultimately what motivates them to get rid of it because they don't want this hanging over them. That and the fact that it casts a shadow. Yeah. 
literally over the city. I can't imagine what that would be like to just have most of your city in darkness. Oh, did you read that article a couple of years ago about, I think it is a city in Switzerland that's like in, in a mountain? Valley. Valley, that's it. And because of the way that it must be Switzerland or Austria, I don't know. I'll look it up. I'll find it. And it's basically the sun in the winter doesn't come over the ridge so they don't get any sunlight. So they built these giant mirrors to reflect the sunlight into the city because people's mental health was suffering. So maybe that's what we need, some mirrors. Well, yeah, they need something. What they really need is somebody who can move the citadel. Like, it's too massive and it just hangs in the air above. This is the thing. Like, it's suspended in the air above the city. We know it's an angel, like a seraphim. We know that its wings are out and that's literally covering this. I cannot imagine how huge this thing is. It just does not. My brain won't make it work. No, neither. I struggle with the scale as well and I struggle to place where things are within it. Like... I know we know that, you know, Sarai's room is in mm. the right arm, but there's, what, five of them? And they've got this yeah. ginormous place. Like, how do they ever find each I other? I think they really there? only have a few places that they would go normally, right? Anywhere that's open that had, like, bodies, they would have just left. I mean, like, when Scathus mm. was killed, because he was the one who could actually handle the Mizarthium, like, everything froze as it was, right? So, like, what is open is open and what is closed is closed. But it is so huge that there was a discussion in the text about when they were kids, they used to entertain the idea that there were other children surviving in another part of the Citadel. And maybe they were having these weird parallel lives, which is so hopeful and lovely and so sad that, you know, it couldn't be borne out. Yeah, it's a very childish thing. They didn't have childhoods. Great Ellen and Less Ellen are not parents and they needed parents and they're as much orphans as Laszlo is, but at least they have each other. I don't know. I keep thinking about how Minya being so grim and so horrible, she's kind of the most important member of their team because she really did save their lives and she is their leader even though she looks like a cross child she's just emotionally stunted she was six years old from the time of the carnage onward so she's been a child for like 15 years do you think she's mentally a child though i do not i think she's so deep in her trauma that her body has just stopped growing and i also think that she's expending so much energy corralling ghosts that she can't grow up because that would make her yeah. like 23 yeah. mentally if she was aging. So that's quite a bit older mm. than Sarai and Cyril, mm. who are 17. She's so traumatized that she's got this one veneer, which is revenge, vengeance. That's all she can think about. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that the vengeance burns so brightly in her when the others have kind of gone, eh. Because, of yeah. course, they didn't really experience it the way that she did. Yeah, it's it's like being the child of people who've been, I don't know. I just think of like, what are the... Australian-born children of the refugees who've had to flee their homelands, like, they're going to have that sort of secondhand experience as well, where, like, their parents' trauma is real and still probably affecting them, and the kids are going to inherit some of that but not really understand the depth of it because they're never going to have experienced it the same way. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like, my grandparents being products of the Depression and the way that my grandfather would always finish a plate of food, and when he was really sick with cancer and he just couldn't finish it, Like, he still felt really deep shame if he couldn't finish a whole plate of food. Like, everybody was like, it's okay, Jack. You don't have to finish it. But he still felt like he had to try because it it was so deeply ingrained in him that you do not waste food. Mm. The things that we carry, the things that we inherit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I love the idea that the kids being jealous of all of the parents who looked after the the little dream babies or the little babies who are having these nightmares. The kids were so jealous that they became spiteful. Like they were excluded. And so they were like, well, that would be terrible anyway. There's a lot of pining for proper parents in this section. Um, And a bit sad that Laszlo feels like the best approximation to a father figure is the 
Sarai's actual father. Also just like the first competent male he meets who's a little bit older than him. Yeah, yeah. And like somebody who's brave but also guarded. I did pick that up this time that, you know, I mean, it's very obvious that Azarine and Errol Fane have unspoken history between them. And Azarine is still very obvious in her love for Errol Fane, but Errol Fane is like really cryptic. And I wonder if it's because, you know, he had to do this horrific thing. I wonder if it's because he just doesn't feel like he deserves to go on with his life. Or maybe he didn't actually solve the problem when he killed all of the gods. Or he wasn't able to... Later in the book, we find out that Azarine was taken. And that was when he was spurred to action. Like, to go up and become the god slayer. Why is he not allowing himself to be with her? That's what I want to know. I feel like there's a lot of self-loathing there. I think it's just this idea that I hate he does feel some kind of guilt for what he had to do and he can't really allow himself to be happy. Just love each other, guys. Mary Oliver says, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? Do this, love each other. That's lovely. You don't have to be worth it to love someone. You can still love them. How arrogant are we to assume that we're not worthy of someone else? If they're telling us that we are and we want to be with them and it's all consent, green light, go. For goodness sake, go. Yeah, don't don't try and put things into people's, you know, if someone tells you this is what I want, you don't go and turn around and be like, oh, actually, I don't think this is what you want. This is what you should want. It's not your place to say that. Yeah, not exactly take it for granted, but like get to that point where it's a little like that. <laughs> I think it's also just trusting people to know what they want, right? Like if yeah. someone says to you, this is what I want, then okay, trust them to know that. Don't think you know better than them. Absolutely. It's quite arrogant. Um, it's interesting thinking about Errol Fane as having self-loathing, though, because it reminds me of there's quite a bit of self-loathing in Sarai. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. when she has that nightmare of the ghost telling her to basically end her own life, she believes them. She doesn't, she just believes that she's not worth it. She believes that she's a monster. Yeah. Like, that's such a terrible thing. I don't think it helps that every ghost that Minya brings up is so horrified and angry. And because it's said over and over again that Minya's control of them is complete. I feel like there's got to be people who are more like surprised and many is, I don't know. I just, I can't, I can't thread the needle of how genuine their reaction is or if it's just what Minya allows them to do and feel and say. Actually, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about it like that, but because she is so filled with hate, she assumes the humans hate them because that's what she knows, right? That's what her trauma allows her to know. So when she brings someone in, maybe that's just pouring into them and they're Mm. just reflecting what she feels. So they're like, you are monsters because that's the story she tells herself, right? Right. And like, maybe there are some people, like I know that later Errol Fane's mother is much less, she's not bloodthirsty, you know, like it's not, it's not about that for her. Is is there like this, maybe some unconscious bias going on where like you're taught one thing, you're taught one thing, but like you're willing to change your perspective, but like you still think the first thing and then you have to go, wait a second, I don't want to be that person. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe mm-hmm. that's what Minya finds in every single citizen of the Unseen City because, well, yeah, for 200 years they were subjected to this really awful life. Like she's finding that, but she's not looking for the like, we're willing to discuss or chat like she only fixes on the thing that serves her purpose maybe yeah and and also if you think about the fact that Sarai has been going around giving people nightmares keeping that kind of fear front Mm, of mind mm -hmm. then if that is people's initial reaction that's not that weird but they might still have that inkling being like oh but they're only kids or oh I feel shame for what we had to do you know that I yeah yeah and I like I think if if maybe there had been an adult 
not a six-year-old child who had witnessed this really traumatizing event, if there had been someone who was a bit older and could like reason through it and could say, okay, these are our gifts. This is what we're going to do. So, right, you're going to go down and make everybody have beautiful dreams about the people. And like, you're going to make sure that their, their feelings about us are neutral. Like if she hadn't been so fixated on the rage and like that is hard work to do, but she really did coach all of the other children into a place of hatred. Sarai says it in you know, page 142, Minnie was the fearsome elder sister who had saved all their lives and they would do anything for her, even hate for her. That part was easy, really natural. So because you have a traumatized person at the helm, you know, whose only thought is vengeance, they can't really find another way through it to like maybe make it feasible for them to be accepted in the world that truthfully most of them want to be in. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, she is capable of giving them good memory. She gives um Errol Fane's sister that dream about the the, the tree blooming. Yeah, you know? So yeah. she could have yeah. stoked this alternate timeline, this alternate history where they could have gone integrated, but it just never enters their mind that that's a possibility. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, Minya's too focused on repaying the carnage. Yeah, I think the only other thing I really wanted to mention was that, you know, Laszlo had been neglected in all of these other walks of his life in the monastery in the library he was sort of left to his own devices once he figured out how to cope and be part of that society he could then do whatever but here he's like sought out and made a part of the group in a way that he never was before Mm. so i think that that lack of neglect has really helped him to develop and bloom and grow and really love that ruza was willing to take him on as a friend and also like tease the heck out of him do you have anything else about neglect or knowledge i just wanted to go back to this point that leslo was so reluctant to give his theory and he kind of had to be goaded into it and on page 190 he says was that why he hadn't given a theory because he was afraid of being laughed at no he thought of this because he wanted to be right or or for truth to be stranger than anything they could imagine he didn't want to guess the answer not even for 500 silver he wanted to climb to the top of the cusp tomorrow and open his eyes and see i think that is just summed up laszlo's approach to knowledge to me like Mm. he he knows but until he he's he wants to live it like that's to him what knowledge is knowledge is a living breathing thing the knowing and um yeah i just think that's beautiful it's a beautiful thing and it's like it's not that he's afraid of being laughed at it's just that it's almost too precious to voice that's how i felt about the first baby you know i didn't know what i was having and i wanted it to be a surprise i didn't want to get my thoughts too fixed on one thing which in my case kind of backfired actually but It was a wonderful moment to just look and know what I had been carrying around the whole time. And like Mm. something about not knowing made it a little more interesting and the wonder. And I was so excited. And I had that exact moment of wonder, like, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Like you you don't get that in very many. You really don't get that in very many ways these days. Like there's just so much that's already known and planned out. And I'm a planner. I really like knowing what's going to happen. So. I'm with Laszlo on that. Like, I think I also wouldn't want to offer up a theory. Yeah, that's beautiful. Like, that's magic, right? Yeah. What you've described is a moment of magic, really. We don't get many moments of pure surprise in life. I'm trying to remember the last time I would have felt that. But it happens sometimes. You have that moment of sheer joy where it's just like, oh, my goodness. But, yeah. Maybe when you put all of the lights in the Hogwarts castle... And it's they done. all worked and they all stayed in place. Oh my gosh. I think that was just <laughs> relief more than wonder. But now it's lit up and it looks so beautiful. It's like a little Christmas tree. It's so good. 
Now I want to do that. That seems like something to spend don't. a lot of... <laughs> don't do it. But I want to. Honestly, spent 40 minutes on the mirror of Erised room, which is four lights. Oh, no. And then as I was putting the little circuit board behind, you have to tuck it in behind, it just pulled up the four lights. And I just sat there and I was like, well, guess I'll die. <laughs> This is me every time I do, like, my brother-in-law and I were talking about something and I told him, I confessed one time, I re-sewed a seam 17 times. At the end of that 17th seam, that's how I felt when you were just describing the mirror bears. I'm like, (sighs) I'm just going to put it down and go for a little walk and then I'll come back. I've actually felt proud of myself for the level of patience that I showed and the fact that I could go, no, okay, I'm getting very frustrated. We're just going to put it down. We're going to walk away. Because that is something that I have traditionally struggled with. Mm. Something I felt like I kind of got from my, my dad. My dad has no patience. And yeah, it's just known for having a temper tantrum the minute something doesn't go wrong. Like once <laughs> I watched him build a wooden table and he like sawed the wrong leg and then he like wrong size. And then he went to saw it again, but he used the, the one that he just sawed as a measure. And oh, so no. he sawed it wrong again. And like he literally just lost his mind. And it was just... <laughs> So for me to be able to do this thing and not have a temper tantrum and just be like, okay, it's okay, breathe. It's like a real moment of personal growth That's for me. Growth, so I'm baby. quite proud. That's growth. <laughs> I love it. I'm here for all the moments of growth. So did you have a in-depth marginalia you wanted to talk about? Ooh, I did. All right. So mine was on page 160. I'll give the context of it. Um, Errol Fane has just told Laszlo that he's going to stay with his mother in the city whereas all of the rest of the Ferrangi like the rest of the party will be housed in the merchants guild and Laszlo just assumed he was going with them but instead Errol Fane is going to send him to his own childhood home which I think is really great so you see said Errol Fane trying to smile I'm offering you up to my mother as proxy I hope you can endure a fuss she's had no one to look after for some time so I expect she'll make the most of it and I love this because to me it speaks to how Errol Fane feels like he might be neglecting his mother. He feels like he's denying her the maybe the opportunity to really like love a kid. Like, look, I love my kids so much. And I think that one of my absolute joys in life is getting to like just mother love them, like soothe them when they're upset and feed them. Mm-hmm. And like I taught my son how to use the grocery list yesterday. So we wrote strawberry milk and chocolate milk and big fat watermelon. So I went to the grocery store this morning and picked up all three of those things to show him that when you write on the grocery list the things will appear in the fridge like but like also I don't normally buy strawberry and chocolate milk and a whole big fat watermelon so like kind of it's you know like just getting to treat them occasionally so I I think I really love that because it signals the end of neglect for Errol Fane's mom not being able to like do something she really feels called to do and also it gives Laszlo something that he hasn't had like he's been neglected and excluded from having a mother love so the way that it reminds me of my life is how I really love to be the Leslie Nope and like always send people the thing that they need or like make something really thoughtful like I really love being able to nail it in that way and you always do I just love making people happy oh you're the best oh Um, you are and how will you use this going forward do you reckon I think it will remind me because I really struggle when people make a fuss over me so I'm going to remind myself that other people also want to make a fuss sometimes especially Mother's Day is coming up and my anniversary tomorrow so Yes, I know. Yay. We're going to go see Hamilton. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, I haven't watched the Disney Plus one yet because I wanted to see it live first and we had already had tickets. So I was like, okay, I will see it live first and then I won't be carrying in any preconceptions. Nice. Yeah, so I think going forward, I'm just going to try and remember that like letting other people fuss over me is a way of giving them something, even though I find it kind of uncomfortable. Oh, that's so nice. You deserve to be fussed over. 
<laughs> oh, and how about you? Did you have any in-depth marginalia? Yeah, so my one, um, the context of it is that Sarai and Feral are having a bit of a grim conversation about vengeance and mm. whether they still feel vengeance and what the point of everything is, you know, after Ruby kind of pulled the band-aid off and implied that there's nothing worth living for and everything's been a bit depressing. Yeah, yikes. They have this moment where they just start laughing. You know, they, they're trying to be serious and they just crack up laughing about something. And on page 135 it says, and that's how you go on. You lay laughter over the dark parts. The more dark parts, the more you have to laugh. With defiance, with abandon, with hysteria, any way you can. It's absolutely so true. Yeah, and that's why I chose it. I think it's such an important thing and I think it relates to the theme of neglect in the sense that this is you not neglecting yourself. Mm. It's so easy to get pulled into dark thoughts and the negativity of life. Like, it's so easy to, to lose yourself just as Sarai is kind of like losing herself and this idea that she is a monster and what they do is terrible. Yeah. And being able to find that, that laughter and that lightness is so important. It's what being alive is about is laying over that laughter over the dark part so I think yeah it's a way to fight that neglect and to look after yourself and it definitely reminds me of my own life as well in the sense that (laughs) I think I'm very funny so I'm very funny and I've got quite a dark humor too so I've definitely had this in my life and definitely in my last job my friends like I had two really good friends that I worked with and we would do this all the time like things would be really like dark and just terrible and we would just laugh about something and just like laugh until you've got tears coming down your face mm-hmm. you know that sort of thing and it does make it easier like after a good laugh you things are easier it's easier to get up and keep going it's easier to, to find light and yeah I just think it's so important and you can't neglect yourself like that you've got to look after yourself and find those moments of liberty where you can and I think that's just a really good thing to remember like definitely want to take that going forward is to remember that light can always be found mm. if you remember to turn on the light right like yes we should definitely laugh at things but also laugh at yourself I think is very important like don't take yourself too seriously don't take life too seriously because we only have one life and it's not worth being morose about everything yeah absolutely we don't want to be like Thion who thinks everything is serious no and obviously there are things in life that you take seriously and it's everything within moderation of course you're not gonna go to a funeral and have a laugh um do you have a character to spotlight this week yes so i was gonna spotlight sarai and i specifically want to do it for what's on page 149 Mm. so i hope you'll bear with me because i'm gonna read this i love it yeah so on page 149 it says it's funny how you can go years seeing only what you choose to see and picking your outrage like you pick out a slip if outrage were a slip then for years sarai had worn only the one the carnage hmm I think that Sarai goes through quite a lot of inner conflict in this section. There's a lot of back and forth and she feels kind of like that lack of vengeance and yet she's trapped because it's the only life that she knows. And this manifests as that self-loathing that we mentioned before. And I just think her ability to be able to open herself up, to see the human's perspective because she allows herself to go into their world, to go into their dreams Mm. and see that, you know, there's another section where she says, actually, the humans were victims too. Yeah. And the gods were monsters and they deserved to die. But not the children. Never the children. But not the children. Yeah. No. And the fact that she allows herself to be that open is just, I think, phenomenal. And it's so hard and I really, really feel for her because she's trapped. She can't say that to, you know, the others because they won't understand because they haven't got that context. They haven't walked in someone else's shoes the way that she has. And it's just, it's such a powerful thing to be able to have that kind of empathy 
and I just wanted to bless Sarai for it. That's amazing. It reminds me of um, the Megan Phelps Roper book, Unfollow, which talks about her leaving the Westboro Baptist Church because Mm. she basically was on Twitter and made contact with a bunch of people who were willing to sort of give her the humanity she didn't think other people had. And it sort of broke that protective shell of like, well, we're right and everybody else is wrong, that she had been so fully swayed by that she had grown up to believe. A really worthwhile read. It's so interesting because it's like, on one hand, I have empathy for people who are incapable of viewing other people's stories because I'm like, you just don't know the right people. You haven't met the right people. Yeah. But also you need to be open and allow yourself to have that kind of thinking. You need to be willing to be open like that. I think it's if we all just were a bit more willing to see things from other people's point of views, we'd be better off. Yeah. It's about going out and seeking out not just the stories that you think you should be hearing, but like just listening to everybody's stories, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it's confronting, there's some value in it, you know? Yeah, even if it challenges you. Yeah. Um, how about you? Who are you spotlighting? Um, I think this week I really want to bring up Calixti because I love her. Um, mm. I love that she's immediately a champion of Laszlo's. I love that she treats him with genuine friendship. I love that she even compliments him for being handsome. Um, I love her and Zara's love because I love love. So anytime that a couple show up and they're like adorable together I'm just like oh I love it um and I also love that she's really obnoxious to Eblis Todd who was being condescending (laughs) and yeah she didn't even say oh I believe this I'm going to wholeheartedly fall into this but he was so condescending to her and of course he's really shirty because she climbed his famous tower and he just thinks that she's an obnoxious bug or whatever um (laughs) but then later she just keeps on teasing him like oh don't you know it's rude to wander around in someone's vast credulity like she just won't let it go because she's enjoying her smugness so much and not even because she was right just because she wasn't a jerk about it and he was so yeah yeah um to all people out there who have to deal with condescending jerks and get to like gloat i get it i love it sometimes it's the only way i love that too (laughs) i mean she was amazing that whole bit where she's like oh you lost to my vast credulity it's so good (laughs) so good just amazing it's so good yeah hard eyes for days i love calixty amazing she's so cute next week we'll be reading chapters 21 to 27 through the theme of corruption which should be fascinating i know that'll be a really interesting one i'm keen to see how we go yeah it's only six chapters that's fine yeah and look i mean you can always say that corruption is not necessarily negative that's what i tried to do with neglect like what can i find that's good in this but i'm a bright sider i'm terrible so I i can't be trusted with sad and negative things i just have to turn it in i have to spin it yeah it'll be interesting I think. Well, thank you for potting with me. Thank you. Always a delight. Um, you're so smart and clever. So oh, lucky to have are. you as my friend. I'm lucky. I'm lucky that we make this time every week. I know. It's I so really good. love and it. Thank you for going early with me today. Yeah, no worries. I actually quite enjoyed it. It was nice to wake up and just have this to do and then an unexpected milk run, but mostly just this. Very important strawberry milk. Yeah. Had to get it for the boy. He put it on the list and everything. That's great. He's so lucky. <laughs> I'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at marginaliapod.com.